0: You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. To find out more about the journal, and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP, or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. Today,
1: it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Dahlia Feltman from the Division of Neonatology, North Shore University Health System, on behalf of her co-investigators to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Today, we will discuss their recent manuscript, How Are Neonatology Fellows Trained for Antenatal Periviability Counseling? As improvements in obstetric and neonatal care have been made over the last few decades, an increased number of very premature neonates are receiving intensive neonatal care. Decisions as to what type of care is beneficial in the periviable gestational age, defined by the American Academy of Pediatrics as 22 to 24 weeks gestational age, often require detailed counseling between obstetrics and neonatal providers and the involved family. Recent data suggests that survival in these early gestational ages may vary among centers, with some of that variability attributable to differences in application of intensive care across these institutions. Similarly, this variability across institutions may influence pediatric trainees' views regarding periviable neonatal care. Pediatric and obstetrics professional organizations have recommended development of institutional guidelines regarding care and counseling for periviability management. In this study, the authors investigated how institutional policies and procedures inform antenatal counseling in the setting of preterm birth prior to 25 weeks and how neonatology fellows learn to provide periviability counseling. An anonymous survey was sent to the program directors at each of the 98 U.S. neonatal perinatal fellowship programs. The survey questions were designed to describe the center's policies and procedures around the content and delivery of periviability counseling and to describe how programs teach fellows to provide this care and counseling. In describing the policies and procedures present during counseling and care, the authors found that 36 percent of centers had written policies, and there was greater variability in the approach to care within each center at 22 to 23 weeks gestational age compared to that at 24 and 25 weeks. There was no association between the presence of a written policy and options offered at each week gestational age. 16 and 30 percent of institutions reported using pictures or printed text respectively to describe survival outcomes, and 80% reported using multiple sources of data to determine these outcomes. Nearly all institutions reported that fellows were trained by observing senior neonatologists, with 52% reporting some role-playing or simulation training. Program directors self-reported that real-life clinical experience and feedback from attending to fellow after direct observations were the most effective methods to foster counseling skills. Overall, the authors concluded that there is heterogeneity in educational experience of neonatology fellows for periviability counseling across programs. Advances in education could include learning from attending physicians, fostering joint consultation and Formalizing Communication Training. Dr. Feltman, thank you again for joining us today, and congratulations on this manuscript.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Can you describe your group's sort of underlying motivation behind this investigation?
2: Sure. There were two pretty recent guidelines from professional organizations that came out in the last few years. One was the joint workshop that had members from the NICHD and Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, and then the American Academy of Pediatrics, so it was a joint OB and pediatric-based group. They had some consensus points come out about antenatal counseling for moms that were facing periviable delivery. And then there was a guidance from the AAP Committee on Fetus and Newborn that came out by Cummings in 2015. Both of the professional organizations wanted to talk about the goals of family counseling, and they really incorporated some of the intangibles. We know we need to talk to the families about risks and outcomes, and that's really what we've been focused on so much. But these New guidelines were talking about shared decision-making and how to support the family best when they're making such difficult decisions for their children. And so we were interested in figuring out how this was translating into training for neonatology fellows, those intangibles of, you know, how do you actually communicate and elicit family's goals and, and values in the setting of such a difficult topic. So we wanted to figure out how these fellows learn. And we know that they learn both by clinical learning policies and procedures that their particular institution exposes them to, and then formal training, you know, with their formal curricula as far as having these conversations go well. So those were the objectives of our study, to really understand these training centers policies and procedures towards these moms, the clinical policies, and then figure out how they're actually training these fellows. Most of
1: our subscribers are intimately involved in sort of what peri-viability means and some of the challenges Mm -hmm. with counseling. But for those who don't do this on a regular basis, could you give a thumbnail of what peri-viability means and then what some of the unique challenges
2: are in, in providing counseling? the bar has moved with time to younger and younger ages that's what the peri viability you know gestational age group really is but right now according to both of these guidelines basically it's agreed upon that 22 weeks gestation up to 24 weeks gestation is kind of the what's called the moral gray zone where we don't know we're not fully convinced that Intensive care treatments and resuscitation in the delivery room are always of benefit to these babies. And, you know, when you look at the principles, the four ethical principles, you're looking at, in this case, the risks and benefits. So you want to maximize beneficence for these babies, minimize non maleficence. And because these babies have such a high risk of poor outcomes as far as high mortality, and high chance of morbidity. This is a difficult area to say that we should always resuscitate every baby, we should always give intensive care to every baby. So these professional organizations have, you know, really talked about the fact that the parents need to understand the risks involved and in concert with the physician make a decision as to what would be the most loving and the best way to treat their unborn baby. You know, the two options really are non-intervention, sometimes from the OB aspect, not going through fetal monitoring or C-section or steroids. And then when the baby delivers, if they are still alive, to provide comfort care, knowing that if you don't do the resuscitation, um, that this baby will not survive, but it maximizes time with the family. Um, and bonding, you know, right away and they can be with their baby and not expose them to resuscitation maneuvers or the other option is you know full on resuscitation which includes intubation in the delivery room near in, in this age group almost all of them would need that as well as obstetric interventions that might maximize the outcome for the baby including antenatal steroids magnesium for cerebral palsy prevention possibly c section depending on the fetal lie and, and fetal well-being so that's the big decision here to be made and, and it's a, it's very difficult obviously for these parents to do Certainly,
1: finding effective ways to also educate families who never could imagine these types of issues, I think, is a, exactly. is a big challenge for this counseling as well. How did you go about performing this study and who were the subjects? How did you elicit this information?
2: So in the spring of 2016, we invited by email all of the U.S. neonatal perinatal training program directors, there are 98 of them, including Puerto Rico, and we asked them to do an anonymous online survey using the SurveyMonkey tool. And we asked them questions in the areas of what their clinical policies were at their institutions and what formal training was being done for the fellows, in addition to how they thought they prepared fellows for certain aspects, including some of the intangibles of, you know, some of the more finer aspects of formal communication training. The joint workshop that I mentioned before recommends preparing these fellows who are going to have these really difficult conversations with formal communication skills, and we wanted to see how they were addressing these issues.
1: Did you get a good response from your surveys?
2: We did. I mean, as far as surveys go, I think it was a pretty robust response rate. We had 56 program directors respond, and that made a 57% response rate.
1: That seems like pretty good engagement for surveys. I think the first big area of interest in this study obviously was to determine who's doing the counseling, how that counseling is done, and what the setting is, and then what the content of that counseling is and how that's all provided. How did the care options or the approach to management at each of these gestational ages compare across institutions or across ages?
2: Right. And I'd like to back up just a little bit because, you know, when, when you asked me what the motivation of the study was, just to provide as background, what, not only did we have these recent professional guidelines come out, but we also had a paper by Rashavi and colleagues in 2015 that showed that the biggest, what determined variability between survival between sites was actually the rate of active treatment. And so we suspected going forward with asking these sites what their policies were and what kind of options they were giving these moms at different gestational ages was going to have variability, and and that would kind of mirror what the paper from the Neonatal Research Network had shown. We asked the program directors to tell us whether they had a written policy or whether they just had a group agreement between the neonatologists or whether approaches varied by individual neonatologists for approaches for talking to moms who might be delivering at the different gestational ages. So each separately, we asked about 22, 23, 24, and we included 25 weeks. So for the sites that had a written policy, and that was about a third of the sites, they had written policies across the board for all of those gestational ages pretty much. But when those that didn't have written policies there was less group agreement and more reports of variability by individual neonatologists when you got into the 22 and 23 week areas. So that was an interesting uh, additional source of variability that these moms would be seeing and the fellows would be exposed to in their training. Not only were we seeing differences between the sites, but you were actually having differences between individual neonatologists and so, the fellows or the parents' experience might be different just depending on who was on call that night for that site. So we thought that was interesting. And then I can tell you about the options as well. So we asked them, again, at each gestational age, what were the delivery room options? How did they approach actually presenting, you know, that concept of either comfort care or resuscitation were both options. Were they both on the table for each of these gestational ages or not? And we found that about a fifth of the programs that responded offered only comfort care for babies at 22 weeks and 80% of the programs offered only life-sustaining treatments at 25 weeks. Because shared decision-making has really become you know, kind of a buzzword, but it's a concept that we wanted to explore in this. With shared decision-making, the idea is that it's different than informed consent, where in informed consent, you lay out all the options, you lay out the risks and benefits, and let the patient choose. With shared decision-making, we're actually encouraged to give a recommendation or to hopefully, based on some of the values that we've elicited from the family, and kind of try to customize the plan that'll work for for this family. And so we did ask whether comfort care was recommended or life-sustaining treatments were recommended or were just no recommendations made and just both options were on the table. And so what we found interesting about those who recommended comfort care or made any kind of recommendation at 23 weeks, we found that 27% of the sites reported recommending comfort care for 23 weeks and 25% reported recommending life-sustaining treatment. So it was nearly evenly split between what was being recommended at 23 weeks, which again, kind of points to that variable training. And Ani Zanvier, her group had shown years ago that the residents, this was for pediatric residents, depending on what the clinical experiences were and what the options were and the procedures were around periviability, viability really influenced the residents' views on periviable viable births. And so, you know, that you kind of figured that would happen, but they actually had that evidence that it did. And so I think the fellows are certainly getting a different experience depending on where they are. And it might actually be difficult for them when they transition, if they transition to a place that has a different approach. That's not something we asked about. Certainly. You may
1: have addressed this, but were you able to tell if the presence or absence of a written policy influenced the degree of group agreement in an institution?
2: Well, we didn't. It was either they had to say that they either had a written policy or they went with group agreement. So Got it was it. either one or the other. But we did do uh, analysis to see whether having a written policy had any relationship to you know what options were being offered at twenty two and twenty three weeks or how aggressive how much they leaned towards comfort care or how aggressive they were towards offering or recommending resuscitation and that we didn't find the difference that's interesting
1: who did you find provided most of the most of the
2: counseling
1: you know was it fellows right. attendings residents
2: so we asked whether they had policies on whether written or disagreed upon on who should perform the periviable consults. And we said during the day, so that's just the assumption that there's that full complement of, of the team and not the skeleton crew at night. And we found that only about 36% of the programs had agreement about who would actually do the consult. So we did find that most of the time the fellow was involved in some capacity. 23% of the time they were reporting that the fellows did it themselves. A quarter of the time it was the fellow and then the attending. And 29% of the time it was the fellow with the attending together. Nurse practitioners never were reported as doing the consults, though I know of places where they do. So obviously that's, you know, if we had more respondents, we probably would have picked that up. And rarely, like 16% of the program said it was just the attending typically doing consults. One big thing that came out of the joint consensus, where you know OB and pediatrics or, or neonatology were finally working together, because it's obviously important that they they do work together. This is a confusing issue for moms already, and sometimes if OB and neonatology are coming at this from different perspectives and different goals, that could make it even more confusing. So one of the big recommendations was for co-counseling, so that the MFM or OB team and neonatology would be talking to moms together so that they'd be a little bit more, everybody's on the same page. So we asked whether that was typically happening during the day, and only about 23% of the program said that that co-consultation was happening.
1: This might also look different if you surveyed intensive care nurseries or NICU settings that weren't fellowship programs. It's possible that you might see a a shift in who's doing that counseling.
2: Absolutely. It'd be an interesting study to compare the, you know, the academic programs versus the community programs and what actually happens there. I also don't know if we might find, you know, pediatricians are actually doing the counseling in some of the programs, some of the sites that don't always have an in-house neonatologist sure. or MFM. You know.
1: So the second aim of your project, I think, was to determine how the neonatology fellows then receive training in this counseling after we saw who did the counseling. What were the most common ways the fellows were trained to provide this counseling?
2: Right. So we asked the program directors how fellows in their program learned to do these consults. And they were able to pick more than one option. But by far the most popular option chosen, 95% of the sites said it was observing senior neonatologists. That's how fellows learn it. About half the program said formal lectures were also a way that they taught and about half said role-playing and simulations were being used. So what we found, something that really struck us though, since we already kind of talked about, you know, who we already asked who does the counseling typically, at least during the day, that was very different than how the fellows are actually learning it. Because what we found was, 30% of the institutions reported the attending not even typically being involved in these consultations. So if observing the senior neonatologist was how these fellows were learning, I'm not sure where that learning was taking place in those 30% of the sites. And then for the other, the majority, the 70% of institutions that reported attending involvement, that wasn't always happening with the fellow and the attending in the same room. In fact, it seemed like only 41% of the time is, is when that was being reported. Now, clearly, you know, we have a lot of limitations here. We don't have every training program responding. We have training program directors saying what they think happens. We weren't asking fellows what really happens. We weren't taking notes as to looking at each consult and seeing who actually was in the room. But It was striking to us that these opportunities, luckily, this situation doesn't happen that often where we do have to counsel moms, but that means that the fellows aren't having many opportunities to participate in this in the first place. And then if only 40% of the time they're with us, the fellow and the attending together, you know, we're really not sure where that feedback, where the attending could watch the fellow and give feedback, that doesn't seem to be happening as often as it could.
1: You also asked the directors to describe what they felt were the most and least effective training modalities. What was interesting out of that question?
2: Kind of following with what we were just talking about, they rated the method that was most effective or most popular as being effective was reported as the attendees providing feedback to fellows after observing consultation. So again, we need to kind of increase those opportunities, I think. The least effective, they thought, was the didactic lectures, though so 50% of them had said that's one way that the fellows do learn. Real-life experience and counseling, again, that clinical experience was thought to be very effective. And then simulation was also thought to be effective. That can definitely kind of fill in the learning gaps when you don't have this clinical situation coming up so often, you know, you can still do role-playing and simulation and, and others studied this and found that it did increase fellows' ease with doing family meetings and get just more practice, It's more opportunity to practice. And then we asked also about parents in the NICU providing feedback to fellows directly, and they thought that was effective, but I'm not sure that that was actually being done, but they thought that would be a nice idea.
1: There are some other papers that I'm sure you're familiar with that Suggest that sort of doing simulated training or structured cases helps move an institution towards a more uniform approach to management in certain key instances. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another area that your paper and others report as challenges in this counseling is just how much variability there is from one person to another inside of a program.
2: Right. I think in the future, what we'd like to see is develop a training curriculum that's very strong in simulation, but, you know, before you're teaching how to have these discussions, I think we really need more empiric evidence from all the stakeholders on really what does good counseling look like that would satisfy the parents' need for emotional support and values, you know, something that's congruent with their family values and getting the right information and understanding the information. The OBs and neonatologists would have to feel like they adequately did communicate risks. I know sometimes we hear a lot that, you know, we don't think the family gets it. They don't understand. They don't understand how difficult baby's life is going to be. And so we need more empiric evidence to figure out how best to communicate all together, these three stakeholders.
0: <laughs> and
2: then we can teach. <laughs> we don't want to teach the wrong thing.
1: Right. So, what are some of your overall key points or takeaways that you want the audience to know about this, your study?
2: We really touched on that simulation training, that it can supplement these uncommon clinical experiences. So, I think moving more towards that would be good, but like I say, it has to be evidence-based so that we are not going through the wrong motions again and again uh, with the fellows either. We did find a lot of sources of variability, and I think that might, if we could standardize approaches a little bit better, we could promote fairness between different patients, a little bit more uniformity for the fellows so that they don't get confused, so we could standardize who does the consult. Printed information is something we had asked how these people give information. Is it just verbally? Is it printed? Is it a video? Very few programs had printed information. Over 90% of parents that were asked about their prenatal counseling at a little bit older gestational ages in a study by Gautier, I believe, and Jean Dier, but I may be wrong on, on that first name. They found that, you know, 90% of parents wanted something in their hands, some kind of printed information. So that might be more satisfying. Certainly, you're in a situation where. The parents maybe if you're hearing for the first time that they have to make this decision and, and once they've heard that, maybe they're not remembering anything else that was said. So having that printed information would be helpful. And then we found those sources of institutional variability and intra-institutional when you're relying on each neonatologist making a plan with the family that, that makes it difficult as well.
1: Your study describes who does the counseling and looks at the heterogeneity among how people may counsel different interventions at different gestational ages. What did you guys describe about how effective your program directors felt giving the data and information about outcomes were to the patient, as well as then having that good two-way or interpersonal communication between the provider and a relatively new to this situation family.
2: I spoke a little bit about the intangibles of trying to learn, how do you teach fellows to have those skills of empathy and and promoting trust and honesty, certainly in a very short time, sometimes a very stressful time, as mom is active labor, you know, there are going to be constraints to how good the communication can be, but how can we, even in those situations, kind of optimize that communication? And so we did ask the fellowship directors to rate their teaching of interpersonal skills in counseling. They all thought that they were strong or very strong in fostering the growth of physician empathy but some reported weaknesses in addressing the parents' spiritual needs and giving parents emotional support. And so I think that kind of shows that disconnect that while we are all trying to have empathy and and we do have empathy, sometimes there's a disconnect between what we'd like to communicate and how we can actually show that empathy by addressing parents' emotional and, and spiritual needs. And so I think that's where that formal communication training and a lot of practice with very directed simulation could really fill in that gap. Those top things that we asked about were, you know, everybody thought they were doing a pretty good job of teaching fellows how to convey the information. So the mortality and the morbidity and that mm-hmm. communication of risk. But then it was that interpersonal skill set that was shown as being weaker. And not surprisingly, it just shows us a place that we can work on things.
1: Well, Dr. Feldman, thank you again very much for joining us today. Congratulations again on this very timely and important area of work. And I just want to again say thanks very much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Dr. Goodnight. And thanks for giving us the forum to talk about this issue, which I think is important and has a lot more study that's necessary to be done. Wonderful. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast.
1: Thank you for listening. During the recording of the preceding podcast, Dr. Feltman referenced a study by Gauthier and Javanier. The study she intended to reference is personalized antenatal consultations for preterm labor, responding to mothers' expectations by Gaucher et al. in the Journal of Pediatrics, 2016. We apologize for any confusion in this reference. You can
0: find out more about the journal at www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time.